all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Nearly 30 million children frequent the ER each year, and chances are either you or your child has had to be seen in the ER. So today we have Dr. Matt Moretti on with us. He is a physician in the pediatric emergency room at the Batson Children's Hospital, and we're going to kind of talk about the different emergencies that they see in the ER and maybe some things that you can do uh, before you have to go to the ER and kind of talk about when you need to go to the ER. And we would love to hear from you. Give us a call and share your comments and questions with us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So welcome, Dr. Moretti. Thanks for coming on with us today. Hey, Dr. McLeod. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so some of the statistics I found were 30 million children go to the ER each year. Um, and I'm sure, I don't know if you know numbers off the top of your head for our pediatric ER um, at the Children's Hospital, but I'm sure it's probably not that many, but it's it's very high. Yeah, it's very significant. We see about uh, 48,000 uh, patients every year in our small little ER uh, here in Jackson. Um, complaints ranging all over from sniffles and colds, ear infections, all the way up to very significant traumas and uh, just some very sick uh, patients who end up in the ICU uh, fairly quickly. So it's a pretty busy place for sure. Yeah. And the pediatric ER at the Children's Hospital is the only pediatric ER in the state. So it, it stays a busy place. And to see how much it's grown um, when I first started training uh, at in residency, it was just a little hallway. That's right. It, it's definitely, uh, it is the only one. Uh, and for years, it was more of a hallway just off of the adult mm-hmm. ER. And, and we have, uh, ever since about the first year that uh, we both started training, it, it moved into uh, its current location. And it we've pretty pretty much outgrown it yeah. uh, with the number of patients that we're seeing every year. Um, but yes, it, it's tremendously busy. We're the only one in the state. So uh, lots of things start there and certainly lots of things that start out in the community ERs throughout the state. A lot of them will end up coming and finding their way to us. Right, right. So they do some great things. So we're going to talk today about what you can do at home before you head over to the ER, uh, maybe when you should go to the ER, because there's lots of ER visits that maybe you could manage at home or going to see your primary doctor or an urgent care clinic. And so we're going to get into some of those things today. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. So give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 
So let's talk about uh, trauma first. So trauma can be um, broken bones, cuts and scrapes, knocking your head, which is very common in Mm -hmm. our kids and teens because... Uh, they don't always think before they act. <laughs> and so we have we have lots of trauma. So let's talk about maybe broken bones first, because it's pretty rare to go through childhood without having a broken bone. Yeah, it, it's extremely common. It's one of the most common presentations in a trauma situation. Uh, we're the only pediatric trauma center in the state. So we see quite a significant amount of trauma uh, and fractures are very, very common in that we have the a beautiful benefit of having a great orthopedic residency uh, and um, doctors who can see patients in our emergency room 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, we do see a lot of these fractures. Fractures most commonly in kids seem to happen in their arms uh, or their ankles, I feel like, are pretty common. We get a lot of forearm fractures, a lot of wrist fractures, uh, fractures just above the elbow. Uh, And it can be, you know, it can honestly be kind of difficult sometimes to really know if the kid has a broken bone. You know, sometimes it's very obvious their their arms kind of hanging at a funny angle. uh, And other times they just seem to hurt and nobody's really sure exactly if anything's going on. Um, What I usually tell parents, uh, because sometimes we don't find a fracture and then sometimes they'll feel bad and say, I'm sorry, I wasted your time. And I just kind of explain to people that I don't have an x-ray machine at my house. I don't expect that you have one either. Uh, so if you're worried about a fracture, if you're worried that they're not moving their arm uh, the way that you expect them to, uh, it's perfectly fine to come in. Uh, what usually will happen uh, if we can see a very obvious deformity where the arm does not look like it's in the shape it's supposed to, we try to move you back pretty much immediately uh, as best we can. Now, if the ER is very full, sometimes that doesn't always happen quite as quickly as I would like, uh, but we try. We'll get pain medicines on board. Sometimes that may just be by mouth. If the fracture is not very severe or if the child seems to be tolerating their pain pretty well, and then we'll get x-rays as quick as we can. Uh, if there's an obvious fracture, we'll, we would obviously either put a splint on ourselves, depending on if you know it's a simple enough fracture or more complicated things, we'll call the bone doctors. Uh, in, in fact, splinting is nationally is kind of the recommended way of doing it. And you can even put splints on at home. Uh, I I see one of the most incredible things I ever saw was somebody came in, their child had a pretty significant forearm fracture and their dad had grabbed a national geographic thick magazine and just kind of wrapped the magazine around and put a bunch of rubber bands over the top of it. And it worked amazingly well as a splint. It was just about as good as you could do in the ER. Yeah, and what it, what's the point of the splint? It just kind of holds the bone in, in an immobile position, right? Because the bone fracture itself does not have a whole lot of pain associated with it in and of itself. It's all the movement, mm-hmm. the muscles pulling on it, and the bone kind of pushing on different tissues. But if you can hold it very, very still, it doesn't really hurt nearly as much. So trying to create an immobile situation is what that splint is for. So we're talking today with Dr. Moretti, who is a physician in the pediatric ER at the Children's Hospital. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And we'll go to Kim in Ridgeland. Thanks for calling today. Hey, hi. Um, I just had a few questions about my daughter. She has seizures. And she's 13. She hasn't had one for, like, two years and a few months, but she had one, like, on the 18th. And I was just wondering, 
at what point, when should we take them to ER? You know, three years ago when she first started having seizures, we just, like, stayed in ER. But um, now I'm just wondering, the last one she had, it wasn't as bad. But now I'm wondering, oh, wow, should I have taken her to ER? Kim, that's a great question, uh, and we do see quite a number of seizures in the emergency room. Uh, the answer is kind of variable, sort of like you said. Uh, it wasn't that bad. So sometimes seizures that are very short uh, and resolve by themselves with just, you know, with no loss of breathing or color change, uh, you might, if it's during the day in the middle of the week, you might just call your um, your pediatric neurologist and talk to them and say, hey, this happened. This was, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't as bad. Do I need to go see somebody? Can I come into the clinic? Do we need to just change your medicines? Uh, and a lot of times those simple seizures can get managed over the phone that way. Um, if it's a very significant seizure, uh, she stops breathing. It lasts a very long time. It doesn't seem to be stopping. If you had to give a medicine to stop the seizure, uh, those are times where you definitely want to come into the emergency department. Okay. Um, okay. But it's not always a, a, you know, a have to come to the ER. Although just like with everything else, you know, what I tell parents is, you know, I don't expect you to necessarily act like a doctor at home. If you guys are worried, if it concerns you, if you don't feel like this was good and you don't feel like there's a quick way for you to get access to your medical team, uh, please feel free to come in. Okay. Worst okay, case scenario you. is I send you home. Thank you. Yes, yeah, ma'am. Thank you for that. And um, one thing I'll add to that, too, is if so Kim's daughter has known seizures. And so you can kind of have a plan in place. If you know your child has seizures, you know what to do. You know how to handle it. If it's the first time you have a seizure, I would recommend going to the ER. Um, and especially if it's a child, if it's a little mm -hmm. infant, we would definitely recommend going to the ER and being evaluated. So, um her situation is a little unique because right. they know how to handle the, the seizures. But if it's the first time your child has a, a seizure, that's another indication that I would recommend to go to the ER for that as well. Yeah, at the very least, you need to get looked at. Uh, we we don't always do uh, a big workup for a first-time seizure, um, but it's very important that somebody evaluate you because sometimes seizures uh, are not simple. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, it takes somebody who's seen it a lot to necessarily tease that out. So definitely need to be seen if it's the first time. Yeah, thank you for your call. And so we'll get back to broken bones real fast before we take our, our break. Um, so we talked about splinting, and there's some ways you can do that at home before you get to the ER. And so the biggest thing, like Dr. Moretti said, is you want to try to keep the bone you know, still and immobile so that it's not moving around too much. Now, sometimes if it's a really bad fall um uh, we've seen it a lot with from mm -hmm. football to cheerleading to just falling off your bike. But sometimes you can actually see the bone poking through the skin. And yeah. what, what would you recommend in that situation? So that is definitely can be a very scary situation. Uh, some people get very squeamish uh, at the side of that. Um, realistically, the most important thing you can do is immobilize it. Don't try to push it back in. Don't try to, you know do any of those types of things, you can really cause some damage. If the fracture is so significant that the bone is sticking out, you could really hurt things. Most of the time, what I recommend people do is quickly put some sort of a wrap over it just to kind of keep it uh, from getting more dirty, some sort of clean, wet cloth. 
um, and then do what you can to create some sort of immobilization, whether that's like we talked about, grab a magazine and try to immobilize the bone, include the joints above and below. So if it's in your forearm, try to immobilize at the wrist and the elbow. Um, worst case scenario, you don't have any th- access to anything that you can think to immobilize. Most emergency crews on ambulances carry some makeshift splints and they can help you with that too. Uh, but you definitely want to immobilize that. And if you ever see bones sticking out, you need to go directly to the emergency room. Yeah, get seen as soon as you can, because the biggest risk for that is infection. Tremendously high infection risk when the bones are sticking out if it's not treated correctly. And the infection can be not just in the skin, but it can get deep into the bone itself. And that can be very difficult to treat. Yeah. So we'll take our first break. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments about emergency room visits or what you can do at home if your child has an accident, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one mpb ring That's 1-877-672-7464. podcast. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today with Dr. Matt Moretti, who is a pediatric emergency room physician at the Vatson Children's Hospital. And we're talking about different things that you can do at home before you come to the ER, when you need to come to the ER, and what happens when you come to the ER. If you have any questions or maybe you have some comments, give us a call and let us know at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can also send us an email to kids at So we talked a lot about broken bones, which happens with trauma. But the other thing that happens to kids a lot is head injuries, um, especially toddlers who are just learning to walk and run and hitting their head all the time, falling. Um, Sometimes kids fall off the bed, fall off their bike. And so you kind of, as parents, you don't really ever know what to do when they hit their head, especially if they knock it pretty good and they get that big old goose egg on their head. So tell us a little bit about when you need to come to the ER for that. Uh, yeah, head injuries uh, can can be a tough one. Um, <clears throat> they can certainly look very significant when they happen. Uh, and just like you said, that goose egg comes up and it can freak a lot of people out. Um, head injuries are probably one of the more common presentations for trauma that we see. Um, I guess probably the easiest way to think about it is just sort of what happens immediately after. Um, and that sort of can help you to decide when it is time to come to the emergency room. If your child loses consciousness, come to the emergency room. Uh, Any loss of consciousness greater than five seconds a lot of times is going to warrant a pretty good evaluation, at the very least quite a long wait in the ER watching to make sure nothing worsens. If 
you have no loss of consciousness, then it sort of becomes a watch and wait scenario. We want to see, um, does anything change? Does their mental status change? Are they acting very oddly, differently than normal? Are they having multiple episodes of vomiting? Do they seem much sleepier than usual? Those might be indications of concussive symptoms, like a concussion, uh, which may prompt you to go to the emergency room. Um, maybe not, and it sort of is going to be the comfort level of the parent. If, however, you see more concerning things like speech slurring or significant vision changes, if they can't seem to stand upright, if they keep toppling over, all of those might be more concerning and, and warrant you getting seen fairly quickly in the emergency room. A lot of times people expect that they're going to come and get a CT of the head or, you know, we do hear people ask for x-rays every now and again. Uh, and the reality is most of the time, actually, even in some of those more significant cases, that's not necessary. Uh, there's a, you know, you may know there's a large series of studies that were done um, years ago that they keep updating. Uh, and it was through a network called the PCARN network with and they looked at hundreds of thousands of these kids with head injuries, and they found uh, certain factors may warrant you to get CT heads, but the majority of the time they can be watched. Um, most head injuries uh, require nothing more than observation time. Right, and you can't di diagnose a concussion based off a CT scan. You certainly can't. Imaging is not diagnostic for concussion, almost of any kind, MRI, CT, and certainly not x-rays. Uh, that is, this is purely a clinical diagnosis. If you have symptoms of persisting headache, dizziness, um, some mental confusions, these are more indicative of a concussion um, or what some people call a mild traumatic brain injury. Uh, imaging is not helpful in most cases uh, in the acute setting. Yeah, so so that's a lot of times why we don't do the mm -hmm. CT scans. And plus, CT scans or CAT scans um, expose kids to radiation. And yeah. so that, you know, we try not to do those unless we feel like it's strongly indicated. Um, so, again, not everybody gets a CT scan when they come in if they hit their head. But it's, you know, if there's any other concerning symptoms, we're definitely quick to scan them if we have to. Yes, we certainly uh, we certainly are sometimes probably quicker than we need to be. But the reality is I just don't know. Uh, and it can be difficult to make that diagnosis. And so if there's something concerning, there, there's a good chance you'll find your way to the scanner. So one thing I always hear, um, even like friends, family members, when somebody hits their head, they'll say, don't let them go to sleep. <laughs> is it OK if they go to sleep? Absolutely. So uh, there's some older practice of medicine that uh, where we used to wake them up frequently or we would tell them not to go to sleep. Uh, and a lot of that was concerned because it's difficult to evaluate somebody's mental status while they're asleep. And there is a an extraordinarily small subset of people that will uh, have difficulty waking. But um, that's not really a thing that we do too much anymore. The waking multiple times at night, not letting them sleep is not is not too common. There's not a lot of good literature based medicine to kind of support doing that. So most of the time I actually tell parents it's fine to leave them asleep. Uh, it's fine to let them rest. Uh, rest is profoundly helpful for uh, managing the symptoms of concussion. So we do let them sleep and you don't have to wake them up four or five times at night. Right. 
So we're talking today with Dr. Matt Moretti, who is a pediatric ER physician at the Children's Hospital. And we're talking about different things that we see in the pediatric ER, what you can do at home um, before you come to the ER. If you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. So give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 so another thing that happens with trauma and happens a lot in our kids are cuts and scrapes. Uh, again, it's it's rare to go through childhood without a broken bone, and it's rare to go through childhood without getting stitches at some point. At least one of your children probably will. That's certainly true. Uh, mine, I, was, we, I have three children, and my youngest has already had stitches all across her forehead. Yes, yes, very common. So let's talk about what you can do at home, and when do you need to take them to the doctor to see if they need stitches because I feel like I know I get pictures all the time from family and friends Uh, does this need a stitch or not and it can be hard to tell with just a picture Um, so if there's ever a question I would recommend going and getting it checked out and evaluated Mm -hmm. and most clinics can do stitches you don't actually have to go to the ER absolutely Um, but let's talk about when how parents can recognize if they feel like they need to take their child to be evaluated for a cut or a scrape sure Uh, very very common and uh, cuts and scrapes come into the emergency room. Um, something that I, I oftentimes will recommend people do, uh, obviously first calm your child down because they're usually pretty freaked out and it can be really difficult to look and assess the wound while they're really distressed. So work on getting them calm, apply pressure to the wound. Um, a lot of times you can just grab a washcloth or um, some other clean cloth. You can use the child's shirt if you need to. Um and just apply direct pressure to the wound. If you can apply direct pressure to the wound for five minutes or so, much of the time the bleeding in a normal child will stop, and you can actually get a good look at the site. Um, Wounds that go all the way through the skin into the fatty tissue underneath probably need stitches, uh, or at the very least need some manner of closure. We don't always use stitches. Um, Wounds that are just more scrapes or abrasions that can you know, be washed and just kind of stick a Band-Aid on it. Obviously, those things you could stay at home. Um, But it takes you doing that first step of calming the child, stopping the bleeding, and then looking at it to really make that distinction, Uh, especially if the wound happens to be on the scalp because they just bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed. So it can look look very scary at first until you get the bleeding to stop and really see what it is. I love that you just said that a lot of clinics can do some minor suturing. Uh, that is absolutely true. If you have a very small cut um, or a very simple laceration, it might be a good idea if it's during the day, during the middle of the week, to call your pediatrician and see if they're able to accommodate you. Uh, because we don't necessarily want to have to go to the emergency room if we don't need to. Um, so so ask. You know, If your clinic is capable of doing those things and they have some free space, uh, a lot of times they'd be happy to do that. Uh, if they don't, they will absolutely will tell you that we don't have uh, the opportunity to do that today, uh, and they'll redirect you. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about what the difference is. You had mentioned like if it's in a scrape or an abrasion, a lot of times we can't stitch those. We can't make mm-hmm. those better. Uh, those just have to heal up on their own. So can you tell tell our listeners like what the difference is in the appearance of that? Sure. So a cut usually is going to be linear. It, it means it has nice clear edges um, and you're going to be able to see the layers of skin down into it. A lot of times you'll see this yellow kind of bumpy substance underneath uh, and that's fat. 
And so at that point, we know that the cut has gone through the layers of skin into what we call the subcutaneous tissue, which is the tissue just below the skin, and that is fatty tissue. At that point, we're not talking about a mandate anymore. Um, if you know, if we need to do stitches, we can do stitches. Sometimes we can do uh, sort of uh, medical tape called steri strips, um, or even just skin glue. Um, but usually, you're going to see a nice clear edge. Uh, it's usually fairly straight and it goes down into those tissues. Abrasions or scrapes as they're often called is more of a, an irregular shape. A lot of times the skin is actually just torn off and it's not necessarily all the way down. A lot of times you'll just see a larger patch um, of irregularly colored tissue uh, where it's red and white here and there uh, and it just bleeds over a broad area. Those abrasions just like you said, I can't really put that back together because the issue is not that a tear, a cut was made down into the skin. It's that that whole section has lost its layers of skin and I can't really bring those together. Yeah. And that's what essentially what we're doing when we're putting stitches in or staples mm -hmm. or gluing it, we're trying to bring that skin together. Right. And so it's kind of difficult with those abrasions to do that. It sure is. And like Dr. Moretti was saying, I can't stress that enough applying pressure for at least five minutes mm -hmm. um, because some of the some areas of the body have very superficial blood vessels that will bleed 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 absolutely and it it can look horrible and it can take a long time to stop the bleeding um, and that doesn't necessarily mean anything it just sometimes mm -hmm. it takes at least five minutes of pressure and um yeah which that seems like a long time. And when you're holding pressure, it, it is a long time. Absolutely. But that can still be normal, that it takes up to five minutes to for something to quit bleeding. Mm -hmm. And so always try to hold pressure for a really, uh, at least five minutes to see if you can get a good look at what the, what the scrape or the cut is. We're talking today about emergency room visits and what you can do at home and what happens in the ER. We would love to hear from you, so give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back. an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. 
We're talking today with Dr. Matt Moretti, who is a pediatric ER physician at the Children's Hospital here in Jackson. And we're talking about different things that you can do at home and what to expect in the ER and when you need to take them to the ER. So if you have any comments or questions, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So we've talked a lot about when you need to go get evaluated if you need stitches or if you need glue or staples. Tell us a little bit about how y'all kind of determine if you need stitches or if you can glue it, which is kind of nice if you can glue it because then Mm -hmm. you don't have to hold the kids down. You don't have to numb them up and we can just glue. Um, And sometimes we even use staples. Uh, And so tell us a little bit about how y'all make that decision of what you use. There's a lot, yes, there's definitely a lot of different ways that we can close wounds once we've decided we have a laceration that needs to be closed. Uh, age goes into that decision-making a lot, as you said. Uh, some kids are able to tolerate things differently at their different ages, uh, and they're able to hold really still. Uh, we have lots of different size sutures, sutures that can be absorbed and sutures that can't be. Um, certain body parts will kind of make us have to do certain things. Uh, most of the time, uh, on the mouth uh, or in the hair, it can be really hard to glue those areas. Um, we we just don't find it's quite as easy when there's all the hair up in your scalp to get a good seal with the glue uh, or around your mouth. Most kids are just going to lick the glue right off, and that's always kind of nasty. So uh, we we tend to put sutures into those places. Um, But if the child can hold still enough, um, a non-bleeding wound can be glued in most places of the body, uh, assuming the skin is not under tension. Uh, if the skin's over a joint, uh, if the skin's sort of on or around the chin, uh, then sometimes the pulling of the skin is a little bit too much to kind of uh, stay stable with with just glue. So we'll have to put stitches. Uh, but most of the time, we can we could glue these other wounds. It's important to note that you can't glue a non a bleeding wound if it's still oozing, if it's still leaking blood. Uh, water or wetness makes the glue not set. Uh, and so it will just lift the glue right off. So uh, if we are having a harder time getting that wound to just completely stop bleeding, uh, it doesn't really matter where the wound is. It can't be glued. Uh, staples are, uh, it's an interesting um it's an interesting dilemma. Uh, staples are fairly common still, uh, and ex- they're extremely quick to put on. In some of our cases with our really combative patients, the staple may be the safest thing to do because it takes you know half a second to place a staple. Uh, they're not the best cosmetic outcome, and they can be a little bit uncomfortable to have removed um, because of the fact that it's truly a staple. Um, but sometimes it is kind of a go-to for I need quick control of the wound. Uh, and so it's still it's still fairly commonly done. It, there's a lot of disagreement in the literature and in sort of discussions as to whether or not we need to keep using staples. Uh, but knowing some of the patients that we have seen sometimes who struggle to uh, calm down enough to let us do anything, um, it's that or risk, you know, the complication potentials of a sedation. And so sometimes staples are really a reasonable option. And most of the time, 
I've ever put staples in or I've seen patients with mm-hmm. staples is always usually in the head or in the mm-hmm. scalp, I guess. Um, so for cosmetic purposes, most of the time that's going to be covered yeah. up with hair. Um, so that's that's usually the most common place if we're going to mm-hmm. use staples. It's going to be the head. So we'll kind of move away from the trauma side and talk a little bit about medical illnesses and reasons why you would go to the ER. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So fever, we see mm-hmm. fever all the time in the ER. And uh, when does somebody with fever need to come to the ER? So that's a tough question uh, because we do see it a tremendous amount of the time. Uh, and the reality is there's not a, a large number of times where a fever should necessarily bring you to the emergency room. Um, most of the time, these things can be managed in your primary care office. Uh, but there are definitely certain circumstances where that's not the case. Uh, fever in children under 28 days of life absolutely needs to come first stop to the emergency department. Uh, fevers in children that young can be your only sign of a very significant infection. And when you're that little, uh, you know, you don't have almost any immune system. Um, mother's breast milk is the only real immune system that you have at that point. Uh, but even that's not perfect. And so uh, children in that small of an age range can get very, very sick very quickly. Uh, and so children under 28 days with a fever greater than 100.4, so 100.4, need to come first stop to the emergency room. Uh, those patients are going to get quite a significant workup because of the risk of severe infection. They'll get blood drawn. They'll have urine taken. And uh, in most circumstances, we'll also have to collect some spinal fluid. Uh, which is a procedure that's very similar to women getting epidurals, except for instead of putting medicine in to the spinal space, we're actually taking fluid out uh, to test it just like we test blood and urine. Um, Patients with immunocompromise absolutely need to be seen. Uh, That's our sickle cell population, um, our cancer population throughout the state, um, as well as any children who have had transplants or are on immunosuppressants for some reason. If your child is on steroids chronically, they very well may be immunosuppressed, and it would be extremely reasonable for them to come to the emergency room for evaluation. Um, From a regular uh, child without any medical condition standpoint, it can be tough. Uh, There's this phrase that I keep hearing all the time, high fevers, uh, which is sort of a medical misnomer. You either have a fever or you don't. Um, except for in some of these rare populations that we've just talked about, uh, the height of your fever is actually not predictive of any outcome. Uh, fevers in and of themselves, uh, the height of the fever doesn't necessarily give you seizures. Um, it's how fast your fever changes. Um, fever doesn't necessarily give you brain damage. Most, uh, immunologists are of the opinion that, um, the human body without external stimuli, or some sort of brain problem probably cannot mount a fever high enough to actually cause true brain damage. Uh, You may see those febrile seizures, those fever seizures, uh, but even those are almost always completely benign and leave no no problems. So most of the time, these things can be something that you can call your pediatrician's clinic and say, hey, you know, 
little Susie has had a fever for the last three days. This is how high it is. Uh, do we need to get seen? Do we need to come in and be evaluated? And most of the time, they'll be able to try to accommodate you. But again, if your primary care doctor is not able to accommodate you, they'll probably recommend that you go to the emergency room. And if you've already talked to them, then absolutely, please feel free to come to the emergency room. Yeah. So we're talking today about the pediatric ER and when to take your kid into the ER, what happens in the ER, what are some things you can do at home. If you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 So another common reason that we send people to the ER or people go take their child to the ER is dehydration. Ooh, yes. Um, And so dehydration is very common in our kids, especially our little ones, because once they get a little bit behind and have missed, you know, a bottle or two, uh, it's hard to catch them back up. It's it's really hard. It's 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 hard to make a kid drink. Um, Mm. It's a lot easier to make an adult do it. So. We see dehydration a lot in kids. And so tell us some signs of dehydration that parents should be looking for if their kid gets a a really bad flu or stomach virus. And when should they take them into the hospital to be considered for IV fluids? Sure. So this is probably even a little bit more controversial than fever, I think, in the medical literature. Um, So... To answer your first question, signs of dehydration. So uh, usually the child is not drinking in some form or fashion or has a significant decrease in their intake. Uh, A lot of times um, they are vomiting or having diarrhea. So not only are they not putting fluids in, but they're also losing a larger amount of fluids. Initially, what you'll start to see is you'll start to see their eyes kind of start to look more sunken. That kind of shiny glimmer to their eyes starts to kind of fade a little bit and it gets dull. Their skin may start to feel more dry, and it can even um, tent when you kind of pinch the skin on the back of their hand, sort of like an older person does. Um, Their mouth will get dry. Most of the time, you'll see that first happen on the lips and then kind of move into the mouth where their tongue and their insides of their cheeks are getting kind of dry and sticky. Um, And that's probably the first set of signs. That is where we start to call it what's mild dehydration. Mild dehydration is the very most common presentation of this in the emergency room. Uh, And there is not actually any indication for IV fluids in those children in general. Um, Mild dehydration is something that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the World Health Organization recommends be managed with oral rehydration. That doesn't mean give them a whole thing of Gatorade and say, drink this now. And in fact, the recommendation is much more uh, intensive, I guess, on the parent than that. And it's giving them a couple of sips of water every five minutes or so. Uh, So if they can take one or two sips every five to 10 minutes, they'll actually do pretty good. A lot of times the trick I tell families is sit down. You're going to be sitting down with your kid on the couch anyway, because they're not feeling like doing anything. So turn on their favorite cartoon and grab your bottle of Gatorade or Pedialyte or water. Uh, and every single time a commercial break comes on, just get them to take two or three sips. Uh, nowadays with commercials, as often as they are, that, that actually gets you a pretty good way. Uh, and that's more than enough to r- accommodate for that. Moderate dehydration has all of those same things that we just talked about. Now they're not going to have tears anymore. Uh, their urine output will probably be down a little bit. Um, And a lot of times the characteristic that we look for in this range is their heart rate starts to go up. So their heart is beating faster. It's tough if they're febrile, if they have a fever too, because fever will make your heart rate go faster. So it can be a little tough. 
Um, but if you're seeing that their heart rate is up and their urine is down and they're not crying tears anymore, you're now in sort of that moderate dehydration range. This is the probably the controversial one because the actual recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics and World Health Organization says do not give these patients IV fluid boluses. Uh, it is probably one of the most common reasons that they get IV fluid boluses, though. Um, these kids truly look sick. Uh, and so it's sort of a natural response to want something done. So parents really push us hard to give fluid boluses in this age range or in this uh, dehydration range. And there's not really a, a true medical indication for it. The way that fluid boluses work, uh, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in this situation because uh, you're going to pee most of that fluid out within the first four hours or so. So this is still actually a range where the recommendation is to just orally rehydrate them. Um, now if I'm not able to orally rehydrate you cause you're vomiting too much, that's a bit of a different story. A lot of times those kids find their way into the hospital, uh, because IV fluid rehydration in a more slow manner is kind of needed because, um, they're just not able to tolerate oral fluids. Yeah. And then the severe one is sort of all of those other things, but now their mental status has changed. They may be very limited responsiveness. Their blood pressure starts to get lower. All of those things are indicative of a more severe dehydration. Severe dehydration absolutely needs fluid bolus resuscitation because at this point, severe dehydration is really hypovolemic shock. So your body has so little fluid in it that it's not able to even maintain its normal function. So we have to resuscitate then. Um, those patients come into the hospital. Those patients absolutely get fluid boluses and get chronic uh, maintenance fluids. Um, but that is actually pretty rare. We don't see a whole lot of children with true severe dehydration. Yeah. And a lot of times when they come to the ER, we'll give them something to drink and mm -hmm. see how they mm -hmm. do. Absolutely. And if they can't keep it down or they can't drink enough and we don't feel comfortable letting them go home and try to rehydrate them, mm -hmm. then we will give them an IV Absolutely. and give them some IV fluids. But uh, we try to give them the benefit of the doubt because Absolutely. nobody wants to put their child through an IV. And yeah. especially if they're a little dehydrated, it can be a little bit harder to get an IV too. Yes. Um, and so we give them a fair shot and let them try to drink before mm -hmm. we send them out home too. So Yeah. We will take our last break, but we've got a few minutes left. So if you have any questions or comments, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We've been talking today with Dr. Matt Moretti about pediatric ER and different emergencies that our kids and teens experience and what to do at home, what when to take them to the ER, what happens in the ER. We've got a few minutes left, so if you have any questions or comments, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 So someone did send a message asking about what to do if a tooth gets knocked out and do they have dentists at the ER? Yeah, so um, this is a, it's not, it's a little scarier, I think, for parents than it really is, Um, but we do see a lot of teeth that are completely knocked out. Um, The most important thing is find that tooth, okay? So um, you need to kind of have the tooth to make some decisions. If it is a baby tooth, uh, or what some people call the primary teeth, there's nothing that can be done. We don't put primary teeth. We don't put baby teeth back in. You can actually damage the adult tooth that's trying to grow behind it if you try to replace it. So primary teeth, we leave alone. Um, but if you lost an adult tooth, uh, the reality is the most helpful thing that you can do is to put it back. Um, grab it um, by the by the sharp pointy side. Don't grab it by the roots. Um but grab it um, by the part that you would normally see when you're seeing somebody smile, rinse it off with water, and then actually try to put it back in. That can be difficult for some families because it's not a very comfortable thing to do, and it, it does cause pain. Um, but if you're trying to look at what is the most helpful thing I can do for my child to make this tooth stay, it's immediately replace it. Uh, what I'll tell people to do is make sure that you've got the tooth um, holding it by the right, correct end and that the front is facing the front. Um, and then just have them take a great big breath and just push that thing right back in where it's supposed to go. Uh, then you can stick a, like a rolled up washcloth in their mouth and have them bite down on it. That'll hold the tooth stable while you get to an emergency room. Uh, if it happens to be during the day, um, call your dentist. Uh, a lot of times the dentist office uh, are more than capable of going ahead and putting a splint on, and their splint is going to be far better than mine. Um But if we can get that thing in and stabilized rapidly, that's going to go the furthest to actually having that tooth survive. If you're uncomfortable putting the tooth in, and some people are, and that's perfectly okay, um, it needs to be wet. So put it into something. You know, the best solutions out there, there's actually solutions that you can buy that uh, help to keep uh, all the different fibers coming off of the end of the root alive. Um, and so if you happen to have that fantastic, you're a special person, uh, put your tooth in those, uh, dental solutions. Most of the time we don't have that. So, um, put it in milk. If you have milk, if you don't have milk, put it in water. If you don't have water, put it back in their mouth and tell them just to kind of keep it in, uh, in between their cheek and their gum. It'll keep the tooth wet and it'll hopefully keep it from, um, losing all of those ligaments that are stuck to the bottom of the tooth that kind of help hold it in place and keep things alive. Um, but then report immediately to your local emergency room or your dentist's office. Uh, the, sh- the longer that that tooth is out, the more likely it is it won't survive. And we're talking minutes to hours. We're, we're not talking about a long time. If the tooth is reimplanted within 30 minutes, most every time it will survive. But once we get outside of an hour, the percentages go way, way down. And do y'all have dentists there that can take care yeah. of it? So at Batson, we happen to have, uh, at UMC, there is a dental school. And so we have dental residents that are actually able to come in to our emergency room. Dental um, 
you know, residents or dental dentists that come to the emergency room is not quite as common in your community ERs. So if you happen to be elsewhere in the state, that may not be as reasonable a thing to expect. Um, but that's, again, why I say if it's during the day, if it's during your dentist hours, give them a call uh, and see if you can get in. Uh, but at UMC, yeah, we can have a dentist uh, or a dental resident to come in and see you that same day. Awesome. So for our last couple of minutes, I just want to make sure we kind of go over some Halloween safety yeah. tips so that we can keep you out of Dr. Moretti's ER tonight with your kids. Yes, please. This is a busy, busy night. Uh, yeah. Halloween is one of the busiest nights in the emergency room, and that's not just superstition talking. Um, so definitely a lot of things that we can do. Um, you want to stay together as a group. Um, larger groups are easy to see for vehicles. Uh, because one of the common uh, things that can happen is somebody's driving too fast through a neighborhood, mm -hmm. doesn't see that child and ends up striking them with their vehicle or striking their parent with a vehicle. So staying together as a group is a good way to kind of help that because it's a lot easier to see 10, ch 10 children than it is to see one. Um, somebody in that group or multiple people in that group should have flashlights of some kind so that it's easier to see as well. Or some, maybe some reflective glare gear yes, as part of your costume. Absolutely. Somebody could wear one of those fancy, uh, orange vests that, um, workers wear on the roads and that would be fantastic. We do also recommend just to say safe personally to avoid homes or neighborhoods that you're not familiar with. Um, most people in this world are kind, wonderful people, but some people are not. So staying away from completely foreign or unfamiliar places is just good safety advice. Um, most people are not going to tamper with your child's candy, but you know, you always want to, you always want to make good decisions. So staying in familiar areas is helpful. And trying to tell your kids too, to make sure when they're picking their houses that they're going to, hopefully they'll be with you. But if you have yeah. older children, you know, they have a little more free reign. And so just make sure you tell them, don't walk up to a house unless the light is on. Yeah. Most people these days do kind of do exactly what you say. They, they turn on their front porch light if they want somebody to come. If their light is off, they're either not interested in people coming or they may not even be home. Um, but that's a home that you can't see from the street. Uh, and so that can be present an unsafe situation. Yeah. And, you know, if the other thing that sometimes can happen to you is ingestions, they may eat something or drink something or get into something at a Halloween party that maybe you didn't think they needed uh you can always call the poison control uh right. it is it is a toll-free number just google poison control and the number comes up call them they are so helpful yeah. it's so. the same number all across the country 1-800-222-1222 yeah. yep so well thank you so much dr moretti for coming on and hopefully we gave you some good tips out there to keep you out of the er everyone have a safe halloween tonight and Bundle up if you're taking your kids out trick-or-treating. Uh, today's show is engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now, coming up next on MPB Think Radio.